If you have your Bibles with you today, would you take them and open to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, we're going to read the end of this chapter, verses 21 through 31 this morning. And let me just give you a heads up, uh, although we have a good ways yet to go in Galatians, we have two more chapters. Today is the last day in Galatians for about a month and a half. Uh, We'll have a special Thanksgiving service next week as we're preparing for Thanksgiving. And then during December, we'll have a special Advent series, which I'm very excited about. We're going to be looking at Jesus in the book of Revelation. A little bit of a, a unconventional place to go for a Christmas sermon series, but Jesus is all through the book of Revelation, and it's an exciting place to see God's plan uh, in Christ for his people. So we read Galatians today, and we'll pick back up in Galatians in January. I'll ask you if you're able. Our custom is, would you stand for the reading of God's word with me today? <clears throat> this is from Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These, two, these women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray one more time. Father, as we have read now your holy inerrant, inspired word given to us that we might have everything we need for life and godliness. We ask that you will indeed illumine the eyes of our hearts. May we see wonderful things in this portion of your word. May you open it to us so that Christ is revealed in all of his glory, in all of his majesty, that we might praise him and delight in him today. It's for Jesus' sake and in his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, they say there are two types of people in the world. There are those people who like to divide the world into two types of people, and there are those who don't. Jesus clearly was the first type of person. Jesus is always telling us throughout the Gospels stories and parables where he is dividing the world into two types of people. He tells us that there were two men who went to the temple to pray. He tells us that there were two men who set out to build houses. He tells us that there were two sons, each of whom wanted the inheritance from their father. There were two sons who both wanted to work in their father's vineyard. There were two people who went to the temple to give alms. He's constantly telling us that there are two people. There are two ways of living. And what's unexpected about this is the comparison that he's making. When he does this, he's not saying that on the one hand there are people who who live spiritual and religious lives versus the people who live secular lives. 
when we read them, we realize those are not the comparisons he's making. He's saying both these people are living religious, spiritual lives. They're doing spiritual things. Both of them, after all, went to the temple to pray. Both of them, after all, are in the temple giving alms. Both of them are seeking to please their father and earn his inheritance. So both of the people in his parables are doing religious activities. The contrast instead is this. What is in their heart? In each one of his comparisons, there is one person who is going and trusting in his own ability, trusting in his prayers, trusting in his almsgiving to make him right before God. Jesus tells us of the Pharisee who prays. He says he prayed to himself and he, went home, he thought that he went home justified. And yet it was the other man. The other man who does all of these same activities and yet in his heart he has humbled himself and is living only by the grace of God. And the one man who goes to the temple to pray and who does not even lift his eyes to heaven but humbly beats his chest and prays and Jesus says that's the one who went home justified. They did the same activity but they did it in completely different ways. He always makes this distinction. Larry Osborne tells us that, that in thinking about the Pharisees, we know, we've read the Gospels, we've read the Bible, we know the Pharisees are always the bad guys. But he tells us we need to remember that the Pharisees are not only this group of people who are out there. It's not just this first century uh, group of people that, that we don't have to worry about anymore. He says we must be always on our guard because Pharisees are not only all around us, but in fact, it's easier for us to slip into that Pharisee mindset than we would ever like to think. He says, very memorably, uh, he says that becoming a Pharisee is like eating dinner at Denny's. With no offense to our men's group that enjoyed dinner at Denny's this last week, he said nobody sets out to eat dinner at Denny's, but sometimes you just end up there. You don't ever make that plan, hey, tomorrow night let's go have dinner at Denny's, but sometimes you end up there and you eat there. He says that's what becoming a Pharisee is like. Nobody ever sets out in their mind to say, I think I'll be one of those guys. I think I'll be a Pharisee. I think I will put all my trust in my own righteousness, in my own goodness. But sometimes we end up there, don't we? We end up there not by conscious decision, but by default of our human nature. If we are not constantly going to the gospel, if we're not constantly living in the goodness of the gospel, if we're not constantly hearing it preached to us from the word of God, then we end up there, just like sometimes eating dinner at Denny's. In this passage, Paul, again, divides the world into two groups of people. And we have two points this morning. First, there's two types of people. Second, there's two different types of blessing. There's two types of people, and then there's two types of blessing. Now, Paul, again, like Jesus, is this type of person who's dividing the world into two types of people. And he does it relentlessly throughout this passage. If you heard as we were reading, what he does in this passage is to make a... a enormous contrast <clears throat> and to, to divide the world into these two groups of people. And, and it, he just goes on and on. He says, first, there's Hagar and then there's Sarah. There is the slave woman and then there's the free woman. There is the old covenant and there's the new covenant. There's Ishmael and there's Isaac. There's people born according to the flesh and people born through promise. There's slavery and there's freedom. There's the present Jerusalem and Jerusalem above. There's those who are persecuting and there's those who are persecuted. Throughout the passage, what he's doing is he's drawing a line in the sand, as it were, and saying there are always two types of people. There are always two types of people. And it always might seem a little bit like an oversimplification to say this. But as we read this in context, we see what Paul is doing here. And this is a brilliant move. 
throughout the book of Galatians, this is what Paul has been doing. He's been teaching us that there's only one way to be right with God. There's only one way to gain God's pleasure. There's only one way to be saved, and it's only through faith in Jesus Christ. Through clinging to his righteousness by faith. Through putting all of our hope in him. That's the only way to be saved. We will never be saved by trusting in our own goodness, our own morality, or our own righteousness. And and throughout the book of Galatians, he's pushing this forward, and he's arguing against these false teachers who have come into the church, who are the Judaizers, these false teachers who are coming in, and what they're saying is, well, Jesus is nice, that's a good start, but then you must add to it your own good works. You also must obey all of the law of the Old Testament. And so we've seen them say that, that you must be circumcised to be a true follower of Jesus. You must obey the dietary laws of the Old Testament to be a true follower of Jesus. So they're saying, Jesus, that's a good start, but now you must add your obedience to it. And this is why that got so tricky, is because those people who were teaching it, they were some of the Jews from Jerusalem. And so when Paul counters with his corrections, they might just say, well, listen, Paul is this... Johnny come lately, you know, he had been one of us, he had been a Pharisee, but he's gone out from among us. But we, as the Jews, have all of the tradition of the Old Testament on our side. We are the descendants of Abraham. We can trace our lineage all the way back through all of the Old Testament, that we are God's chosen people, entrusted with the law, entrusted with the patriarchs and and the kings. Everything comes from Abraham, and we are his sons. And, And that's a pretty important step. And so that's why what Paul says in this passage is is a brilliant move. We see what he says. It's almost like Paul is saying to these Judaizers now, he's saying, yeah, that's right, you are the sons of Abraham. But remember, Abraham had more than one son. He had sons by two different women. One of them was a slave woman, and one of them was a free woman. And really, the question is not, do you have Abraham as your father? The question is, who's your mother? That's the question they need to be asking. Sure, they can trace their descendants, their, uh, their lineage all the way back to Father Abraham. But the question is, how do they get there? Because Abraham had one son by a slave woman named Hagar, and that son was named Ishmael. And then he had another son, born according to the promise, by his wife Sarah. That was the son named Isaac. And Paul's saying that, spiritually speaking, everyone in the world is either a Hagar or a Sarah, either an Ishmael or an Isaac. They're one of these two people. Everyone in the world is either a son of Hagar, who was a slave woman, and if you're her son, then you're a slave too, or you're a son of Sarah, and she was a free woman, and if you're her son, then you're a free person as well. And so to see how this plays out, turn back to Genesis if you've got your Bibles with you. This this will become more clear when we see how Paul is reading Genesis uh, 12. Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 12, the first few verses, this is where God first makes all of his promises to Abraham. When when he comes to him the very first time, Genesis 12, 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, his name hadn't been changed to Abraham yet, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham, Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all the possessions they had gathered. So this is the first place now 
God makes his promises to Abraham, including this promise, you will be a great nation, that you will have many descendants. And the text notes for us that Abraham was 75 years old, which is a pretty bold promise. At this point, Abram and Sarah don't have any children. They're 75 years old, and God promises that children will come from them. Many, many children will come from them. Now turn over to Genesis 15. Genesis 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your, very, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So here he is now. We see in chapter 12 he's given him this promise that he will become a great nation and have many descendants. Chapter 15, Abraham's worrying. He says, Lord, I remain childless. And the Lord renews his promise, restates it to Abraham. Now look at verse, uh, chapter 16, verse 1. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian whose servant, whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, that it may be I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarah said to Abraham, May the wrong done to, you be on, done to me be on you. It says at this point that he's been in the land of Canaan for ten years. So he's 86 years old now. It tells us a few verses down. He's 86 years old. So one year to get to the land of Canaan and ten years living in there. Now, I think we can sympathize quite a bit with Abraham at this point. He was given this very unlikely promise when he was 75 years old. And even when you're 75, that's going to sound pretty unlikely. And what do we do when we get a promise from God or feel a calling from God and we're not sure how God's going to work that out? <clears throat> I think if you're like me, most of us begin to plan in our own heads. We think, okay, I'll do it this way and I'll make these plans and this is how it'll go and I'll have this timeline in line so things can happen exactly on my schedule. But God's timing is never our timing, is it? And so 10 years now, or 11 years now, have gone by and he's 86 years old and it doesn't look any more likely to Abram and Sarah that they're going to have a lot of children and that their descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars of the sky. And so he's no doubt beginning to, to doubt God's promise. He's beginning to wonder, is God going to be faithful? <clears throat> I hardly have time to wait for the microwave to heat something up. He's waited 11 years. 11 years they've been waiting with no fulfillment of this promise, no child of their own. This is a long time to wait. There's a, a, a place in Second Kings for the story of Elisha and a Shunammite woman. And this is another woman in the scriptures who, who's getting on in years and has no children. And Elisha asks what he can do for her to bless her as a repayment for the good she's done to him. And she says, oh, no, I have everything I need. And he says, I promise that you'll have a son. And, and she says to him, oh, my Lord, do not tease me. Don't make promises that you're not going to fulfill. 
we know how these promises land uh, on a woman who's now 86 years old like Sarah is, who no doubt has all her life been wanting children of her own. To, to hear that promise, you almost don't want to even accept the promise. You almost want to say, don't, don't tease me, Lord. Don't make promises if these aren't going to come true. And now 11 years later, it hasn't happened. No doubt in that time in her life, she has watched all of her friends have babies, attended the, the baby showers for them and, and celebrated with them, and yet wondering all that time, when is the Lord going to fulfill this promise he's given to me? And so they do a very natural human thing. They take things into their own hands. Instead of believing God for his blessing, they decide that they are going to work in their own strength to earn it. They make their own plan. They say, okay, God doesn't seem to be doing anything here. He's not acting. We'll take this into our own hands. We will work in our own strength. This is why, now in Galatians, Paul is going to point to Hagar and he's going to say, Hagar becomes the prototype of all those who are trying to earn salvation through their own strength. She becomes the, the paragon of all these people who are not resting in the Lord's promise, are not believing him for his word, and they're not waiting on him. They're taking matters into their own hands and saying, I will earn it myself. I'll just do this. I'll, I'll make it on my own. Now turn over to Genesis 17, if you're, if you're still in Genesis. Genesis 17, verse 15. This is the key sequence of it all. God comes again to Abram and Sarah to remind them of his promise. Genesis 17, 15. God said to Abraham, As for Sarah your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover I'll give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abram said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. So here it is again. Now it's 25 years after the original promise. Still nothing. And God comes again, and he renews the promise, and he says again that they're going to have children. And poor Abraham, at this point, I think it's just gone too far for him. It's been 25 years. He's 100 years old now. In Romans 4, Paul reflects on this. Paul says, Abraham considered his body that it was as good as dead, and he considered Sarah, he says he considered the barrenness of her womb. The Greek word for barrenness is necrosis, dead. He said, I'm dead, Sarah's dead. How are you going to give us a child? We're dead. And so Abram laughs. In verse 18, for understanding Galatians 4, verse 18 is the key. Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Understand what Abraham is doing here. God has come to him to renew his promise, to give him the promise of his grace that he's going to give him everything they've been longing for. He's going to bless them with children, and all of these promises are still going to come true that God has not forgotten them. It's a free gift. The free gift for Abraham. And what does Abraham do? He counteroffers. He counteroffers. He comes back to God and he says, eh, I don't know. How about instead you take Ishmael? You're promising to give me a son. That's not going so well, is it? Here's Ishmael. How about you accept him? He says, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. In other words, how about all these great promises you're talking about? We'll do those. We'll just do them through Ishmael. 
you see what Abraham is doing here? He, he's hearing the promise, and it, it must be too good for him. It's too good to believe. He, he literally, he can't believe that that promise is yet going to come true. And, and we can understand. It's been 25 years. He's dead. Abraham, Sarah's dead. So he says, Lord, instead of me relying on your grace, instead of me simply believing your promise, <clears throat> how about we go with what I'm able to accomplish in my own strength? How about we take this son, which I've worked for and I've earned, and how about this becomes the way that you will bless me? You bless me through the work of my hands, rather than me trusting you for your grace. The grace is too good to be true. So God, how about instead of me receiving your gift, you receive this imperfect thing that I've been able to achieve? And we think about that. Ishmael, this son, this is the result of Abraham's sin. This is the result of Abraham sleeping with his wife's maidservant. A sinful union with, has produced this child, and now he says, God, how about this? He's presenting to God, because, because he's having trouble by faith receiving grace, he, he's presenting to him his sinfulness and saying, God, how about this? Will this do? Will you receive me on the basis of this? How often do we do this to God? How often are we tempted to live the same way? And we see in the gospel that in Christ, God is giving to us all that we could ever want. He's giving us the righteousness of Christ freely as a gift, blessing upon blessing, all promised to us. In Ephesians, he says, in him we have received all the blessings in the heavenly places. That's what's on offer, and yet we come back and we counter-offer. We counter-offer. Our human nature just doesn't like to receive gifts. We want to take the credit for it. When the movie's done and the credits roll, we want to see our name in that list and we want to say, I did that. You can praise me for that because I had a part in that. That's my work. We want to take credit and it's difficult for us to freely receive God's grace in Christ. We counteroffer. God says, look to Christ. <clears throat> I've provided him as, as your substitute. He's, he's freely given. This is a gift, all of my grace. And we say, would you accept my sin-tainted obedience instead? Would you accept what I've been able to achieve, what I have been able to earn? Galatians 4, <clears throat> Paul is calling out those folks in the church who are living this way. He says, this is what it means to be a Hagar. You see, a Hagar is someone who works in their own strength because they can't believe God for his promises. <clears throat> this is what it means to be a Hagar who's in slavery. And God... God flat out rejects Abraham's offer, doesn't he? He doesn't even countenance. He doesn't, doesn't even say anything in response to it. He says, I'm not going to dignify that answer with that, that, uh, that counteroffer with a response. Which is bad news. We want to make our offers to God, and God doesn't receive them. But at the same time, it's also very good news, because what does God do instead? He doesn't say a thing about Ishmael. He doesn't say a thing about what Abraham has to offer. Instead, he immediately restates the promise immediately he restates the promise, goes back and says, your good works are not good enough, but I have something far greater to give you. I don't accept your offer because I want to give you my grace. He has something far better in mind to give Abraham and Sarah. He says, you offered the child you made, I'm going to give you the child I promised. You offer to me what is only natural, I'm offering to you that which is supernatural. And so it is. Galatians 4.23, he explains, he says, the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh. That's what this means, according to the flesh, by their own works and their own abilities. 
while the son of the free woman, that's Isaac, the son of Sarah, was born through promise. Because that was God's grace. That was God's promise that he delivered to them. And so the question that he would ask to the Galatians, and the question that he would ask to us, is who's your mother? Who's your mother? Sure, you're a son of Abraham, but who is your mother? Are you a son of Hagar? Are you one of these ones who's trusting in your own goodness, in your own morality? Or are you simply resting in the gracious provision of God? We know we're living by grace when we're able to give up all our own resources. When we're able to say simply, it doesn't matter what I bring to the table. I don't need my name listed in the credits. I rest in Christ alone and his righteousness given to me as a gift. We know we're living by grace when, we are, uh, when we're spending more time looking at God than judging our own actions. For constantly ranking ourselves day to day, feeling good one day and down the next because of how good we have been, then we know we're not living by grace. We're living by our own contribution. John Calvin says very wisely, he says, <clears throat> we must with closed eyes pass by ourselves and all things connected with us, that nothing may prevent or hinder us from looking to God. We must with closed eyes pass by ourselves and all things connected with us, that these things may not hinder or prevent us from looking to God. In Romans 4, he says, Abraham considered that he was dead and Sarah was dead, but he looked to God who raises the dead who's able to bring life out of death, to call into being those things that do not exist, that indeed is his hope. Not what we can accomplish, but what God accomplishes for us. Two types of people, Abraham, uh, Hagar's and Sarah's, Isaac's and Ishmael's, those who rest in their own deeds versus those who accept the grace of God in Christ. <coughs> now the story also tells us that there are two types of blessings. There's two types of blessing. One of the reasons that this story of Abraham and Sarah is so compelling to us is because it is, at its root, it's a human interest account. Right? It's a story about people, that, that they're ordinary people, and God comes to them and he makes these promises, and these are great and compelling promises, and, and yet they're delayed. And we can all relate. We've all been there. We've all, we've all had to wait for things that we desperately want. We've all had to spend our time waiting on God's provision feeling the frustration, knowing the human experience that, that, yeah, we've been there. We know what it is to feel hope being deferred. But there's another sense of this story in which uh, this story actually subverts all of our expectations. We, we think we've been there, we think we know what it's like, and yet all of our expectations for how a story like this would turn out are subverted because God breaks into the story and turns everything upside down. This is where verse 27 comes in in Galatians chapter 4. This is the verse that, that we read it as part of our call to worship. It comes from Isaiah 54, verse 1. It's Galatians 4:27, <clears throat> And he says, this is why it's written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than, the, the one, than those of the one who has a husband. Our culture has no category for a verse like this. We just have absolutely no way to make sense of a verse like this that says rejoice, O barren one. Not just it's okay, but rejoice, break forth aloud and cry, you who are not in labor. We don't have any category for this. 
Because we, in our world, we have our own expectations for what it means to be blessed. We have our own categories. We have our own expectations. We have our own knowledge that, that if you are blessed, this is what your life becomes, becomes like. This is what it will look like if you're blessed. And if it doesn't look like that, you're not blessed. We have our own worldly expectations. We believe good things come to those who work hard. To those who are, are good enough, who are strong enough, who work hard enough maybe who are good-looking enough also so that you have the world's favor on you. We say God helps those who help themselves. Please know that's not in the Bible. Very common, common mistake. Not in the Bible anywhere. It's deist. It's not Christian. But that's what our culture believes. God helps those who work hard, who, who, who help themselves. You see, I think in our society, I think most of our leaders would really, they would have commended Abraham here. They would have said, good for you, Abraham. You owned your problem. You took responsibility and, and you did something about it. You faced the facts. You, didn't, you weren't passive. You didn't put this off. You did not put off till you were 100 what you could do when you were 86. Good for you, Abraham. You took things into your own hands and you created a solution out of nothing. Because we, we expect that if you're good enough and if you work hard enough, if you're good-looking enough, you'll, you'll get good things. That's how the world works. We like Abraham in that sense. That's how the world works, but that's not how the gospel works. In the gospel, blessing comes to those who aren't good enough, who can't work hard enough, who couldn't possibly be good enough or do enough to earn God's blessing. Those are the ones who are blessed. The ones who couldn't possibly earn it. And it's the ones who do work hard for it, who commit themselves to it, who take it into their own hands, that give up the blessing of God. So here's Sarah, an elderly woman who's remained childless into her elderly years. Listen, even in a culture, if you lived 150, that, that's still a long time to go without children. And she lived in a culture where a woman's entire worth was predicated entirely on her ability to have children and to produce sons for her family. In the world's eyes, Sarah was a zero. She was a nothing. And to make matters worse now, she was living right next to Hagar, young, beautiful, fertile woman who can apparently produce a child in one try. And, I mean, Hagar's a winner, right? She's, she's young, she's fertile, she can, she can produce children. Hagar was a winner in her society. The world would always pick a Hagar. Good for her, she's a winner. She gets things done. But God only gives grace to Sarah. God only gives his grace to Sarah. He says, rejoice, O barren one, What's he saying? He's saying, now, O oh barren one, now that you're weak, now that you're helpless, now that you've come to the end of your own rope and, and you're in a position now where you can receive the grace of God. He's saying it's the strong in the world, those who are wealthy, those who are well-to-do, those who have resources, those who can do it on their own. He says those people are so busy relying on themselves and trusting in their own abilities that they couldn't possibly receive the grace of God. That's an insult to them. Rejoice, O barren one, for the Lord has put you in a place now to receive the grace of God, to receive it humbly as a gift. I mean, this is, is it not, this is a story throughout the Bible. It's a story of grace for the barren. Ishmael was the firstborn. He was the winner, but God chose Isaac. Esau was the firstborn, but God chose Jacob. Rachel was the beautiful sister, but God blessed Leah. Hannah was barren and helpless, and God blessed her with Samuel. And when Paul, the Apostle Paul himself, when he was pleading with God, Lord, take away my thorn, take away these trials that you've put in my life, 
take away these difficulties. Don't make me wait. I, I want to be strong. I want to be self-sufficient. I want, I want to accomplish more. And what does God say? He says, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. Paul says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness to receive the power of Christ. Paul's asking, Lord, take these away. And and God says, no, if I made you strong, if I made you self-sufficient, that's exactly what you would be. Self-sufficient and not Christ-reliant. For his power is only made perfect in weakness. And so it must be with us. We will not receive the blessing of God until we learn to boast.